Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Charles Evans sitting down with Bloomberg's Tom Keen of the Council on Foreign Relations. We can bring the beginning of that conversation to you now right here on Bloomberg Radio. Commitment to Chicago economics and to Mr. Moscow, the research department there, and now on to his important uh, duties. So let us dive in right now. And I, within the many speeches you've given, have to go to the speech in Frankfurt, Germany, where you speak about mid-cycle and about the dynamics at hand. Let's first define this new phrase. I don't believe I read it in Dornbusch Fisher Stars. What is mid-cycle? Well, um, you know, what, <clears throat> what the uh, Federal Open Market Committee sort of uh, identified in uh, you know, early, you know, 2019 mm-hmm. is that the you know, state of the economy and financial markets and inflation were behaving somewhat differently than we thought, um, you know, going into the end of 2018. And so we had been raising the short-term policy rate, uh, the federal funds rate target for, you know, some time. Uh, we were never on a preset course for anything, but we were basically increasing the federal funds rate by 25 basis points every, um, every quarter. And then we got to the point where it's like there seems to be more uncertainty. Um, there were a lot of things in, in play, uh, the Chinese economy, and it looked like the path that we had expected, which in my own estimation would have called for uh, probably three more rate increases in 2019. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, that didn't look like that was appropriate. So in the middle of this you know, economic cycle, uh, as we had been taking the funds rate we thought to a more neutral setting, and then just a little bit beyond that, we decided, I'm not even sure what neutral is anymore. I think it may have moved down on a short-term basis, and we need to make an adjustment so that policy would be, and I would say moving from uh, leaning towards a restrictive stance as a path to leaning towards an accommodative stance. And that's pretty much what I think we've engineered uh, with our third rate cut uh, at our last meeting. Parse the uh, distinctions of as Vice Chairman Fisher would speak of ultra-accommodative, where we are now within accommodative. I love the phrase hawkish rate cut. Please explain that to me when we get a chance. Hawkish rate cut? I don't cut, use that language of, like that. I know, uh, I know. It's, so explaining it's somebody else's Not appropriate uh, for the Council on Foreign Relations. <laughs> but within this is this path of accommodation that we're on right now. We're at a stasis point now, waiting for more. But how accommodative is accommodative right now? That's a great question. Um, so... You know, so, so um, you know, at some level, monetary policy can be very detailed, very technocratic. You can look at a lot of data. You can try out different models. You can look for a robust response. Mm-hmm. But at some point, you're always basically searching for, do I want to be neutral? Do I want to sit in the background and just let the economy go? Let businesses do what they do very well, you know, capitalism and Uh, They employ people and they deploy capital and they put it in play when the government is behaving in a nice, responsible, value-added manner, then the economy does very well and you sit in the background. And then sometimes uh, there's a shortfall of aggregate demand, a weakness in, you know, uh, providing more incentives for uh, credit intermediation is helpful or the other way around. So, you know, you're, you're sort of trying to find out are we neutral? Are we accommodative? And I would call the mid-cycle adjustment as one where we were clearly on a path headed towards 
slightly restrictive, historically not that restrictive at that point in an economic cycle, but slightly restrictive. And now, in my own mind, I was searching for something that was definitely accommodative, not hugely accommodative, but definitely on the accommodative side of neutral. And I think that neutral rate probably moved down. I mean, on a long-run basis, my assessment of neutral is two and three-quarters percent. And so we were still below that uh, when we paused. And now we're at one and a half to one and three quarters. I think we are definitely accommodative, but I'm not entirely sure that the short-run uh, neutral funds rate isn't a lot closer to two. I want to get to that in a moment, like but that. you mentioned the foreground right now, and there's times where a central bank can afford the luxury of being not in the foreground. Is the Central Bank of the United States of America right now too much in the foreground? Are we asking too much of the Eccles building? No, I think at uh, this point in the cycle, as we made that judgment to move towards something more neutral, and, and, and the short-run neutral was moving up during that time. In, in 2014, we still had a lot of work uh, to do, even though um, we started thinking about uh, mm-hmm. raising rates. But you know, I would say that uh, policy is uh, not that far off neutral. I'd say it's accommodative. That's a point where... Um, there are other factors, you know, working. There's, there's businesses are, you know, working very hard to take advantage of the uh, tax reform uh, that they uh, enjoy now to focus their business investment. Of course, business investment right now has been falling a little bit, so that's, that's been a weakness. Now, there are other factors, the weak foreign growth, trade policy uncertainty, and things like that. So there's a variety of external factors that have acted to be restrictive, and so it makes sense for us to try to Right. set that a little bit in a risk management setting. But basically, we're not in the foreground, I would say. In, in I believe, the Frankfurt speech you mentioned is one measurement here, 2% uh, with uh, added to the 2% inflation added to the real <clears throat> R-starred, and it migrates uh, within your text from 5 down to 4 down to 2.5%. How R-starry are we? Are we slaves to this calculation right now? So this is just a technocratic way of describing what I was just uh, discussing yeah. about are you accommodative or are you restrictive? And so, you know, if, if you're completely comfortable in talking about, um, you know, I think we want to be a little more leaning towards uh, um, incentivizing, helping credit intermediation so people can... Uh, take on some investments in consumer spending a little bit, then that would be you know below this neutral uh, rate. So mm-hmm. you can go as technocratic as you want and say our stars moved down, the short run version of our stars moved down, and I'm just trying to catch up to it and be a little uh, below that. But in my mind, we're just well, trying to be a little bit accommodative, and it's very artful. I mean, I could pull out all kinds of you know technical assessments, Lowback Williams. Uh, other uh, measures of right. that, but there's a lot of uncertainty around that, so we have to make judgments. Well, what's so interesting here, and I, and I, I will speak of Michael Ferroli at J.P. Morgan, Mr. Bowders with us from uh, Citibank, Ellen Zettner with Morgan Stanley, and others have a glide path down a terminal rate and potential GDP that's under 2%. Let us begin with the idea that's not politically acceptable as well. GDP growth. GDP growth. There's What's a, politics got to do with that? Well, it has nothing to do with politics. Oh, okay. We understand well, you that. you raised it. I'm but but, but the, the, the distinction here is you people are dealing with demographics, nominal GDP, what you've been handed, and that's unacceptable to so many, and I would suggest the impatience of the president as well. How do you deal with that politics buttressing off you 
every day. I don't feel alone in this. I think businesses have been dealt this uh, environment, uh, mm -hmm. demographics, uh, households have been dealt this you know, environment, the ability of the economy to grow at some, at some level. It's, it's you know, very simple. It's a matter of arithmetic. Growth in output is going to be equal to the growth in labor input hours plus what those hours are able to accomplish with the capital that businesses give them. That's labor productivity. That's just uh, identity. And then you sort of look at what determines that. Labor hours, demographics are a big part of that. Well, the aging of the population, uh, male attachment to the labor force diminishes as they get older. Uh, female increases in labor force participation have run their course that led to very strong growth in labor hours in the 80s, but now uh, are much weaker. And uh, younger people don't have the same attachment to the workforce that they used to, so they don't work as much. Now, if you add on top of that the fact that you have a particular attitude towards uh, immigration, which would add to labor employment and hours, then you've got a big hole that you're looking at. So that labor hours component is right. not going to be very large. We estimate it to be half a percent each year going forward. Half a percent. Now, labor productivity. What are you expecting from that? I'd love to think that technology is going to improve well, labor, where, where pro I go. I, labor I, productivity a lot. I, with technology, you didn't mention techno technology in any of that discussion, which is fine, but now we are all living with technology. Does that lead to an inequality? Does that lead to a barbell outcome where technology advantages well, let me some, finish, let so me, many Let others? me finish the low growth just to, to complete okay, that thought, right? Because cause the, 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 the labor productivity might kind of go, we got a tax reform. We've got uh, disruptive technologies. We've got new digital technologies. We ought to see really strong growth. When did we see really strong growth? The 80s. In the 80s, we saw really strong growth. When we were growing, not, not in a decline, we grew three and a quarter percent. Why was that? Labor input. Labor input was really strong during that time period. How about labor productivity? They call that the, labor slow, the productivity slowdown period. We had great growth. Low productivity growth, there was a whole bunch of things going, and it mm -hmm. wasn't until 95 to 2005 that we really saw an acceleration of productivity. It's very difficult to predict when labor productivity is going to accelerate. It takes a very long time. Uh, computers hit the factory floor uh, in a digital fashion in manufacturing right. durable goods in the late 90s. And so you get this, but it's very difficult to predict. You could hope for it to be really strong. You can hope a long time. I just don't know how to predict. We're, we're predicting one and a quarter percent. I think that's a pretty good, great rate of growth, and that's how I get to one and three quarters Where's your nominal percent. And that's what the economy has dealt that hand. We're looking right. at it. The politicians are dealt that hand, too. If they want three percent, if they want four or five percent, then you've got to think about public policies that are going to have an effect on that. We call it fiscal space this year. We'll have a new name for it next uh, year. Labor, <clears throat> employment, practices, all kinds of things. Tell me about nominal GDP. With the lower demographics, with the new lower potential GDP, do we need to have a reset in our belief of the animal spirit? Do we need to get, are we going to be sustained under 4% or could we do okay with current uh, GDP? Yeah, I don't spend as much of my time thinking about nominal mm -hmm. GDP, you know, as, as a but total package, but think do. more about how you, you cut out, carve out the, the real GDP growth and in the inflation. And I would say inflation has been on the light side. It's been under our 2% mm -hmm. objective. And we've said that we should be pursuing a symmetric 2% objective. So that means 
you know, it'd be good if the FOMC yeah. clarified that a little bit more in some of our discussions about uh, our long-run strategy. I think clarifying what we mean by symmetry would be important. To me, it means we should average 2% over some reasonable period of time. We should probably spend half our time above 2%, but we've spent our entire time below 2% mm -hmm. since we uh, called this out. So uh, being willing to go above 2% is something that I think conservative central bankers have a lot of trouble with. I think the ECB historically has had trouble with that. The Bank of Japan has really had a problem with that. And so if you limit yourself, if you say our objective is 2%, but you really act as if it's a ceiling, that reduces the monetary policy space that you have when you right. need to uh, provide more accommodation during the downturn. So that's why I think it's important to achieve our 2% symmetric objective. In Evan's speech is responsible until it's not. And the words come out here. I have mild comfort with 2.5% inflation. Perseverance is <clears throat> crucial. A powerful, full-throated commitment to this asymmetry you speak of. And it all centers on outcome-based monetary policy. Let's dive into this. Olivier Blanchard and others many years ago said, look, we need to really pop inflation. We need an aggressive approach here. You follow on as a public official with really a, a, a strong statement that we have to jumpstart this search for a higher level of inflation. Explain what a powerful, full-throated Evans commitment is. Ah, so you've, you've, uh, you, you've, um, interwoven two different policy proposals. Oh, I would never do that. So, so um, I believe you were probably referring to Olivier Blanchard. I think he was research director at the IMF. And he sort of said, you know, there's really, because we, what we have said is, um, on average, the Federal Reserve, when we go into recession, we cut the short-run policy rate by at least 500 basis points, five percentage points and more. If we start at two and three quarters percent, we can't do five percentage points. And so we don't have a lot of ammunition and capacity. That's premised on uh, a real rate of uh, three quarters of a percentage point and 2% being at 2% inflation. If you don't get to 2%, you start lower than that. If you had a higher inflation objective, and this is where Olivier Blanchard was musing, if we had 4%, 4 plus a 1% real rate, you know, that gives you five percentage points and then you've got more capacity. Uh, central banks have sort of settled on 2%. Um, people get very nervous when you talk about 2.1% or more than that. Uh, but at any rate, so uh, I think most people have backed off in our own long-run framework. Uh, Chair Jay Powell took off the table resetting the inflation objective before we even got started, um, that type of thing. So, so when you are trying to hit 2% symmetrically, I think you need to hit it. And so if you say symmetric, we need to say what we mean that is. If it's averaging, that just means that some of the time you're going to be above it. And since we've been down at 1% and 1.5%, one a quarter for a very long period of time, 25 just doesn't seem that outrageous, except that there are an awful lot of people who kind of say, as soon as you go above 2, you're probably headed to 18. I don't know, a big number. Um, and it just sort of presumes that it's not possible to operate in a parallel environment around that 2%. We need to discuss that. We need to communicate what we mean. I'm comfortable with 2.5% inflation. Um, and in fact, trying to get to 2% with momentum, full-throated, harder than many would try, to make sure that we actually get there, head for 25 
Half the time we don't get to two, so maybe that would get us to two. And then maybe the other half we go over a little bit. You know, when I get to two and a half, I'm definitely going to be looking, what's my forecast? Am I expecting to go to three? Are there special circumstances that are going to make us go further? It is very difficult to generate inflation in the current environment. And in fact, we've just agreed to uh, tax reform and a fiscal policy and government spending that increase the national debt um, by a trillion and a half dollars over 10 years. That's not enough to get inflation going either. So I think, um, you know, we need to, we need to work harder to How understand this and be talk, aggressive. I was talking to Michael McKee this morning about the outcome of your Frankfurt speech. How do we affect the, as you say, momentum, the physics to get above two, even 2.5, three months of 2.7? How do you affect that process? You know, I'm trained as a monetary economist and, um, most of the time your training is, you know, inflation is the monetary authority's concern. If you're Paul Volcker, you know, if you're G. William Miller back in the 70s and you kind of go, or Arthur Burns, well, you know, inflation's double I can't do anything about that. No. Well said. We you did it do on something. the way down. You can do something about that. And Paul Volcker did that. It's the responsibility to deal with that. If inflation is under your objective, it's your responsibility. If you don't understand all the other factors that at work to make you think, you think low rates are accommodative, when in fact, they're actually still restrictive if you're not hitting Do your you 2% inflation objective. Do you need to drive the vector objective. on the interest rate lower? Jan Moyes with that summer piece out of J.P. Morgan, not a forecast, but a model of how you bring the 10-year yield down. Is that where we could be heading as we affect an Evans-like 2.5% inflation jump? So I think that they're kindling to so the I, fire. So I, I think there are a lot of details at any point in the process. We could have a discussion like that, and I, I'm willing to have a discussion. But at the moment, I'm thinking more about strategy and how you go about operationalizing to get to your strategic goals. And I think an enormous part of it is communicating. We are we are headed for symmetry. We are willing to go over. We must go over 2%. If we are going to average 2%, you've got to be above 2% when you've been below it. When you think about the effects of the um, zero lower bound, we now call it the effective lower bound, I guess, because some people think we might go to negative interest rates. I think zero lower bound is probably more accurate. Uh, but um, you know, when, when, when interest rates fall a lot and we're at the zero lower bound, our expectation is inflation is going to be pretty low. Then we get out of this in the second half of the cycle. We get back to a more, we should be there now. And then if you're going to average two, you've got to be above two for that second half. Well, maybe you need to you know, be, be targeting something more like two and a quarter, two and a half on the second half of an economic cycle just to get to an average 2%. Talking about that strategy, making sure that everybody is totally comfortable with it or not, and admitting what your operational approach is, but communicating what you're going to do. After being very clear about that and not kind of getting nervous and twitching when you get to 2.1 or 1.9, because I confess, I'm about as outspoken as anybody yes. uh, in terms of uh, I'm okay with inflation above 2, but then I start talking about inflation at 2.2 and maybe my, uh, maybe my voice breaks a little bit. I think it's part of the DNA of central bankers, and we really need 
mm -hmm. to break out of that if we're going to be able to achieve 2% symmetric inflation. I mentioned Gerald Ford today on television. I realized nobody on my staff knew who he was. Uh, what about whip disinflation? Former president of the United States. Yeah, whip disinflation now. I mean, that's, that's really the strategy we're talking about. How big a constraint is trillion-dollar deficits? You mentioned the fiscal response. The, 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 the vogue this moment is fiscal space, whatever that means. Are you constrained by the fiscal challenges of the nation? I mean, as we look at uh, <clears throat> conducting monetary policy, you do it over a particular horizon that, you know, you can have some effect on three to five years. You look at that forecast, there seems to be uh, no constraints from um, accumulation of fiscal debt. I would expect that to emerge from uh, very high uh, uh, treasury rates, long-term bond yields. That is not what we're seeing. Even though we've seen a little bit of a turnaround, they're very low right now, so there doesn't seem to be any pressure there. This is a different world than the 70s. There is an intense uh, desire for safe assets. Um, you know, people used to kind of go, geez, have you noticed that the German Bund is negative? Who in the heck would want to own the German Bund? And I say a lot of people, because most people who see the negative yield don't mm -hmm. see the point that the price is very high because people want that. So mm -hmm. our, our low long-term interest rates indicate that people well, like holding that. There's a demand for that. You could argue that there's, you mm -hmm. know, a need for more supply, and this would be one way for it, but it doesn't in any way, as mm -hmm. I can tell, constrain our forecasts. Carnegie Mellon with the heritage of Alan Meltzer, Marvin Goodfriend there as well. He wrote at Jackson <clears throat> Hole about negative interest rates. There was a modest uproar about that paper. Your thoughts on the experiment of negative interest rates, and with that, the idea of Japan to Europe to a U.S. slowdown. Do we have... Should we have a fear of a trajectory towards negative interest rates in America? I think uh, central banks that have used negative interest rates have uh, found them to be uh, helpful for them. I think that um, if you, I mean, just take the ECB. The ECB oh, and, and, and the Bank of Japan, they came later to the um, uh, broad asset purchasing programs that uh, the Fed had uh, embarked upon with our open-ended QE3 in September uh, 2012. We did quantitative easing before that, but we did the open-ended in 2012, and that sort of changed mm -hmm. things, I think. Forward guidance was helpful, but the combination was useful. Um, the Bank of Japan did that, ECB did that, but they also mm -hmm. um, added negative interest rates. So I, I think that helped them a little bit. If you look at the level of negative interest rates, they sort of pale in comparison to the actual need for accommodation. Uh, back in 2009, according to many interest rate rules, the Federal Reserve should have been seeking to set the nominal federal funds rate at about minus four percentage points. That's what the Taylor mm -hmm. Rule straight reading would have indicated. We can't do that because, you know, we've got zero uh, minus 70 basis points is probably a very low down payment on something like that. Other policies would have been, you know, at some point also fiscal policy and other policies, you know, I, I, you know, I think that the central bank has to address inflation and has to uh, help the economy as much as we can. But as, you know, long-term treasury rates go very low, if you're concerned about that, that seems to indicate that it's not very expensive mm -hmm. to run expansionary fiscal policies and maybe uh, the trade-off there is better. So negative interest rates, I, I don't think that we can achieve enough with that tool I worry that financial institutions and uh, savvy investors who would find themselves at risk would organize their resources in a way to make uh, their exposure right. more limited. That would be a natural thing for them to do, and so I would expect it would be even less effective 
in the future. I would much prefer mm -hmm. to get our communication strategy more in line with achieving our objectives. Uh, financial institutions and savvy investors have gone after you guys over, as you mentioned, the balance sheet, and the critics would say quantitative easing and the, the, the new quantitative easing that's under process now. Uh, Bill Dudley, of course, with a firestorm, wrote about this with uh, Bloomberg. Vice Chairman Clarida spoke to me the other day and made clear this is not a new QE bout. Just lightly touch, given the time, on the repo uproar and the efficacy of your solution away from being quantitative easing forever. Sure. So we spent uh, a long time at the zero lower bound. We've got a very large uh, balance sheet. We went up to four and a half trillion dollars mm -hmm. at uh, some point. And so it was clear that we needed to bring the size of the balance sheet down. There were a lot of people who kept telling us, yelling at us that we should have a lower balance sheet. At the end of the day, we're going to do what we think is, is best. But reducing the size of the balance sheet was always part of our plan. And so as we embarked upon a plan to reduce the size of the balance sheet at some point, and I, you know, you realize this very early on, how big is the balance sheet going to be when you settle down and then start growing it again? Because cash starts to grow in the size of the economy, the balance sheet's going to grow. And so we had discussions about that, and this is going to have an implication for when short-term policy rates all of a sudden might start to um, mm -hmm. uh, tighten and all of that. And so, you know, we made a judgment that we could... Uh, reduce the balance sheet to a certain point. And then in early September, we kind of learned that it uh, looks like the markets need on a short-term basis because of uh, tax policies where checks are written, funds are put off to the side and aren't used for repo and things mm -hmm. like that and mm -hmm. other things. There wasn't as much liquidity there. You've also got a change in regulatory policies so that some of the uh, banks and dealer brokers that previously were in the business of arbitraging these rates between um, mm -hmm. Uh, you know, repo rates and, you know, other uh, depository rates, they might uh, provide that. And then it's kind of like, mm -hmm. well, you know, the regulatory incentives now aren't as uh, attractive for that. So we kind of decided ultimately that the balance sheet probably needed mm -hmm. to be uh, larger than where we were at that time. And so we embarked on, um, you know, uh, buying uh, $60 billion a month at the moment, uh, short-term T-bills. So this doesn't add duration to speak of to our balance sheet. Right. It's not like the QE where we were buying long-term assets. And so it's in that sense, this mm -hmm. is not QE. This is just trying to provide liquidity and we're mm -hmm. going to be searching for the right level of liquidity mm -hmm. so that we can hit our funds rate target, keep the funds rate within the target range and not have it, um, you know, go... Uh, above right. that because of a lack of arbitrage with other treasury rates. One more question, and then I'm going to go to questions from the floor. You have a wonderful audience here today. Just as a warning, the first question will go to the gentleman from Cedar Rapids, which I haven't talked to before this, but we'll figure out who the gentleman from Cedar Rapids is here uh, in a moment. One final question. This is all great, and it's great for the elites, and it's great for the suits and ties. But the bottom line is America's savers have been crushed by this collapse of the real interest rate, and for even that matter, the nominal interest rate. Speak to the savers out there. Speak to the have-nots of investment who haven't participated through all of this economics. Um, yeah, I talk to somebody, you know, you know, every morning before I go to an FOMC meeting about this exact problem. My wife is always telling me, make sure that you don't cut that interest rate. I need a higher there savings. There we go. 
Right. You can see what effect that's had. Riley, um, Riley, could you, Riley, could you get um, her on radio? We'll want her FOMC. Mrs. Evans. Um, you know, so that, that's definitely the case. One thing about monetary policy, when you're uh, raising interest rates, there are some people who benefit from uh, getting higher interest rates. There are some people who don't benefit because they've got higher borrowing costs and things like that. So it's extremely natural mm -hmm. for us to, you know, be paying attention to that. But at the end of the day, it comes down to how the economy is going to do. I think that everybody's going to be better off when we pursue monetary policies, even when that means low interest rates that are market determined. I mean, we set this. Uh, short-term policy rates, and then the market determines all the other rates. And if it's not mm -hmm. in line with that, like if there's fiscal policy problems, uh, the yield curve will steepen and uh, things like that. So we, we can't do everything that's golden. But you know, in this case, I think getting the economy going so that the job market is very strong, labor markets are very strong. I think the consumer right now uh, is supporting the economy in an enormous way, in a way that the business uh, side at the moment is not, <clears throat> even though the architects of tax uh, corporate reform indicated it should be stronger than that. And so Did that I, work I, out? I think that our, uh, we're still waiting to see. Well, there's so many other things going on. With Brett Setzer had a great thing out on policy. Twitter today, really questioning the efficacy of tax reform. Ah, well, yeah. Um, but at any rate, I don't I want think, to get in that much trouble right now. You know, but, but I think that getting the economy going yeah. is going to help everybody, including savers. Yeah. In this room a number of years ago, he was with the IMF at the time. John Lipsky talked about macroprudential risk. We'll let him have the first question today. Dr. Lipsky. Thanks. Good morning. Morning, Tom. Good morning, Charlie. Good to see you, John. A uh, quick question. Uh, obviously, the Fed in recent, uh, uh, the FOMC in its recent pronouncements, has paid a lot of attention to uh, international uh, economic develop and financial developments. Uh, does that represent a heightened awareness of the influence of international forces on domestic and the domestic economy, and hence on domestic uh, on Fed policy, or is this uh, in line with uh, with previous practice? And secondly, it was uh, many had suggested that with central banks, all key central banks focusing on the same inflation target of two percent, that that would uh, bring about an implicit coordination. Of international of monetary policy among key central banks, uh, yet today we see a substantial differences in uh, uh, in actual short-term rates, and uh, uncertainty about its influence on uh, the value of the the global value of the dollar. Has that uh, agreement on an, a common inflation target? actually brought about coordination or, uh, of uh, international monetary policy? I, those, yeah, no, that's, 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 that's really interesting and, and quite, quite complicated because, as you point out, it sort of gets at uh, foreign exchange values. You know, we could all agree on different inflation objectives, and that, in principle, would have a path for how foreign exchange rates would evolve smoothly over time if everything went on a steady-state fashion. So it gets complicated pretty quickly. But I, I believe that um, on that bases more clarity uh, for all the central banks as to what their objectives are, the uh, weights that they give to inflation versus other objectives, which in most of those cases are secondary to the inflation rate, but they also care about the economy and also probably financial stability to, to some extent. And so the more we all understand um, and are in line in the sense that 
it's normal. We do this too, so it's more likely we'll understand that. I, you know, I, I think there's better understanding of the policies that everyone would pursue um, to achieve that. I wouldn't call it coordination. There is, you know, better than I do. There's lots of conversations. Uh, people get together in Basel uh, six times a year, at least, in other places uh, around the world, and so there's a sharing of information about what's going on that I think is helpful for everybody to achieve uh, their objectives. And, um, um, you know, if it's not cooperative, at least it's non-rivalrous um, um, as best it can be. I think in terms of um, the international situation, um, I don't think things are different in terms of a, a different policy reaction. I think it's a different moment in time than um, many other times where uh, you know, Europe is definitely slowing. Brexit is a huge uncertainty, even though it looks like now uh, things could play out in a uh, more careful fashion. But it, it's really hard to guess that. I, and, and, and China is a big uncertainty. And then international tariff uh, trade uh, discussions, uh, uncertainty around that uh, certainly changes things. So, I mean, in terms of the mid-cycle adjustment, I would say this is very much a risk management uh, approach to ensuring that the U.S. economy is positioned as well as it can be for a little more noise from wherever it could come from uh, to the economy to help support it. Our adjustments have not been anywhere, um, you know, large enough to ch change the dynamics substantially. If there was a big negative shock, we'd have to respond, and I would expect other countries would have to. So mm -hmm. I think this is sort of the normal uh, response, but the moment in time is really, you know, quite different than uh, large events. You're channeling there Frank Knight, Chicago, I'm going to say 1921, it may be 1923, but parse right now, Chair Paul's out there at the press conference, and he has to parse the risks you measure mm -hmm. versus the tangible uncertainties that are out there right now. Expand a little bit here. On, on how uncertain those uncertainties are. I sound like Muhammad Alarian, I'm sorry. How uncertain are those uncertainties right now, those unknowns? Uh, they're uncertain, they're big. Um, uh, you know, before, before, before breakfast, we were talking uh, about a few things and, and we mentioned Rudy Dornbush. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, while I never met him uh, myself, I have seen a number of scholars who uh, studied with him. He's much beloved, and, um, and uh, Paul Krugman attributed, but others too, to uh, Rudy Dornbush, this idea from international crisis that you can see something really bad happening and it unfolds in a very slow fashion and you just think that it has to change the world and it doesn't and it takes longer than you can imagine. Then when things really hit the fan, it happens much more quickly than you ever, you know, expect. And so there's this nonlinearity, you can call it 90 and 90 uncertainty in the sense that it may never have happened, you can't predict the timing of it, but there are these factors out there, and unless something offsets them or somebody else gets their act together, it, you know, doesn't mm -hmm. look like it would be helpful, but it might not occur. That's really hard to address. Ellen Zentner, please, the Chief Economist of Morgan Stanley. Morning, uh, I thought the Evans rule original was brilliant because unemployment or rates remain low at least until unemployment moves to below six and a half percent. But you had to guard against financial stability, and that was important, right? So 
as long as inflation doesn't move above, isn't projected to move above two and a half percent. So if you think about, um, you know, you all have been discussing inflation framework. Uh, what would an Evans rule look like today that would aim at getting inflation higher, but have some sort of knockout clause for financial stability? Yeah. So, um, you know, so when I was arguing for forward guidance, it was a little bit simpler in the following sense. We were stuck at zero <clears throat> on the funds rate. We had a lot of discussions about, you know, <clears throat> the committee was divided. Some people wanted to raise rates, um, you know, sooner than uh, certainly I thought. And the unemployment rate was high. And you had a discussion about, well, what's the natural rate of unemployment? What if it's 7%? If it's 7%, maybe we need to start raising the funds right now. We think it's more like 4.3%. So you talk about mm -hmm. uncertainty. There's a whole lot of that. And it was a little easier. I thought we were trying to stifle premature expectations of a Fed tightening. Now, if you're going to do it, I mean, we've got the funds rate target at one and a half to one and a quarter percent. And so now you'd be trying to craft something where you'd indicate we're going to continue to maintain an accommodative stance of policy. Maybe that would be keeping the funds rate where target where it is now until and then some objective is stated. So my colleague Neil Kashkari, I believe, has uh, not been shy about sort of saying, you know, we should have inflation at 2% and maybe one thing to do would be keep accommodative policy until inflation gets to 2%. That could be one example uh, of that. It gets to be well, it was challenging. It was kind of easy then because unemployment was so high and six and a half percent was such an achievable objective. You, you just kind of knew we should blow through that. You know, you get to two percent and you kind of go, is it sustainable at two? Did we just kind of touch two? You know, should we have six months at two? You'd have to craft something like that. Um, and then I suppose I know I have a number of colleagues, the committee, by judging by my colleague's speeches and our summary of economic projections. Uh, the committee's fairly well divided. Um, you know, a number of people have mentioned financial instability, risks that if there was more leverage taken, more frothiness in markets, then maybe the low funds rate target would be inconsistent with that. I don't uh, subscribe to that argument myself because I think that uh, that's trying to do too much with a single tool. I think uh, our supervisory and regulatory policies ought to be um, <clears throat> ensuring that uh, any damage that comes from uh, leverage. First off, it's we don't get to an over-leveraged position and also that we're ready with uh, capital. Can you reflate without re-leveraging? Can you reflate without re-leveraging? Well, I mean, we have to talk about the circumstances. Uh, I mean, are we talking about a 2009 uh, period? And uh, so, I mean, I think a lot of it comes down to capital <clears throat> in the banking system. And um, at the moment, it looks like we have, um, you know, quite a lot of mm -hmm. capital. We've added uh, more and better capital and the regulatory environment has shifted just a little bit to allow, uh, uh, you know, more uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, dividends and, and, and things like that uh, a little bit. Um, you know, it comes down ultimately during a financial downturn when banks are rebuilding their capital. When do they think they've got as much as they need right. to lend freely and intermediate credit in all the right places? And that's one of those mm -hmm. things that I think always takes longer than most people uh, appreciate. And I think that was a big part of uh, coming mm -hmm. out of the financial crisis this time. Uh, mm -hmm. And also, you know, uh, financial institutions thinking about how their business mm -hmm. model might change over the next five and ten years. So it gets complicated pretty quickly. Let We've only got one tool. Yeah. There's an awful lot of objectives out there. 
And if you want to put a little political spin on some oh, of these please. things, it just, no, no, you, 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 I only say that because you did. Um, but if you did about, you know, you'd like more growth and things like mm -hmm. that, you have to think about sustainability and all of that. So it gets complicated very quickly. Well, the path, let's go to uh, Villain Bowder here, the path from Yale and James Tobin with Citigroup. Villain Bowder. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, you mentioned that the standard Taylor rule in 2009 called for uh, roughly minus 4% so. policy yeah. rate, something like that. Yeah. Um, admittedly, you know, wherever the effective lower bound is, it's bound to be higher than that. But it doesn't explain why the margin that is there technically wasn't used by the authorities. My, my question is, is this political or is there a belief that there's a reversal rate which you mean why we didn't take it into negative yes. territory? Why do you think? And, and the next time of asking, the next cyclical slowdown, you will be back at effective at zero lower bound. And why not plot further? Is there any particular reason for that? Um, that's a good question. Certainly, um, the the Fed was ahead of the other central banks in 2008, 2009. It started in the U.S. and. Uh, our, our, our problems were worse uh, initially. I think there was, you know, uh, I really can't recall any substantial discussions of negative interest rates during that time. I would uh, give, uh, you know, Professor, Governor, Chairman Ben Bernanke huge credit for thinking up new liquidity programs that were inspired by things he had studied in the 1930s and mm. problems there and all of that. Negative interest rates just weren't something that seemed to appeal to many people. Now we have experience in these other central banks, and so you could imagine trying that. I, you know, like I say, I think maybe you could get 70 basis points, and whether or not that would help, maybe. I, I, I frankly think that a lot, I mean, you know, if we had a longer discussion about asset purchases and open-ended QE3, and you can probably, every side can find studies that indicate powerful, eh, not really so powerful, and event studies being what they are, that's a very difficult thing to measure. I continue to come down on the side of, it really came down to communicating the signaling channel. We were going to do whatever it takes. If you look at what Mario Draghi achieved in 2012 by saying, we'll do whatever it takes and it will be enough, what did he do? He developed the OMT. How many OMT bonds did they ever issue? None. I mean, you know, uh, showing your willingness to do something that previous versions of the head of the central bank weren't willing to contemplate goes away. Following through and delivering, though, is really important. So constantly working on that. If negative interest rates were a helpful signal, and I think that's part of what it is, because they keep backtracking on what reserve levels are actually being hit. Right, you know, if anything, right, you right. kind of want to hit more of it and incent. If you lend out more, then you get more credit or whatnot. So the design is challenging. This gets to courage. And as you mentioned, the perseverance needed to reflate above two or two and a half percentage. You say, I want to circle back to the single idea. What is the mechanism of that perseverance, that courage that we need? Well, I think it's very important that the central bank uh, have a uh, sufficient level of independence and be perceived as independent. So I think whenever you start worrying mm -hmm. about the actions that I take through increasing my balance sheet might not be perceived well by a variety mm -hmm. of authorities, that tends to make you wonder uh, about that. Being able to undertake these very strong 
actions and be accountable. So go and testify to Congress and explain it to the public and, and everybody. I'm not saying it's not without risk because we tried things which had not been tried uh, before, to my knowledge. Mm -hmm. And um, they were unpopular for a lot of people. And then you've got the saber question. I have taken the saber question many, many times. Um, it's still there. It will always be there. Um, you know, some people benefit from some policies and other people are disadvantaged. When we, we know when Paul Volcker had to bring double-digit inflation down, the unemployment rolls mm -hmm. increased uh, hugely, and that was uh, mm -hmm. part of the cost. Mm -hmm. And so monetary policy affects people differently at different points in time. Sir? Thank you, David Braunschweig. You um, alluded to the conundrum of uh, lack of productivity growth in the 80s. How comfortable are you with your metrics and your ability to appropriately measure productivity in services, which is constitutes the lion's share of our economy? Yeah. No, those are good points. Uh, productivity is one of the most difficult things to measure. Services, uh, in particular, is very difficult. Um, yep, I, I, I take those points. I think that... Um, no matter how poorly they may be measured at the moment, I believe them to be measured on a basis that is consistent with the way the national income and product accounts are measured. I say that only because if we pick a benchmark, we can pick a benchmark, GDP growth, real GDP growth. Um, I'm trying to explain to people why I think one and three quarters percent is the rest growth rate for the economy. I do not think it's 3%. Um, now, um, inflation has not been growing very strongly. Part of this is going to come down to um, if inflation were growing very strongly, um, golly, you know, and we're at two and a quarter percent growth and inflation is growing very strongly, we'd have to have more restrictive policies. I would guess that would reduce economic activity. And so that would make you wonder about what productivity is. Now, if productivity was really strong, that presumably would reduce unit labor costs and that could be consistent with the lower inflation. So, you know, I look at inflation and I kind of go, if we can hit our inflation objective and get that right, we look at real GDP, we look at all the indicators of productivity and if they're aligned and seem like they're doing well, then I, I call it a day and I'm done. The research staff looks at productivity and tries to find out if there's new insights from the services. It's very important. There's no doubt about it. But uh, it's the, the, you know, the big inflation and how's the economy doing that uh, capture most of my attention. Yeah, I'm sure that some sectors of the economy have very strong and thriving productivity growth. But when you put it all together... And we've right. also got the age of disruption, too. And so you see spectacular productivity gains in other areas that completely decimate, you know, the legacy producers. And that gets averaged across that. So you kind of want to, people usually want to pick out the winners and look at the strong productivity growth. And we've also got the, the laggards that need to be dealt with. To this wonderful question. It's a hard it's, question. I can't do justice to it. It's a hard it. question. There's yeah. no answer there. I was uh, speaking with Ellen Meltzer in Pittsburgh. I had lunch at 
with Alan Meltzer in Pittsburgh, and we got this raging argument about should we Alan aggregate? Meltzer? No, Alan Meltzer? You upset Alan Meltzer? No. I upset Alan Meltzer at lunch. It's hard to do. Yeah. But we have this raging would... debate about John Edwards and two Americas versus the desire to aggregate, or as you say, put all the data together. Do we need to be more respectful of not putting all the data together and worrying about two or three Americas, the haves benefiting from the new productivity and the have-nots left behind? I have a lot of respect for Alan Meltzer. He was a esteemed professor at Carnegie Mellon when, when, when I was there. I didn't always agree with everything, but you know that's the nature of, of economics. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, you know, the state of the economy is really hard. Um, you know, I was falling back on my meager economics training and macroeconomics. One of the first things you assume is that the distribution of activity just isn't that important. Income distribution. Right. High income, low income. It's just a simplifying assumption, but it seems like the level of income inequality is really very large. Uh, at the moment, and um, the nature of productivity enhances returns to um, education and certain skills um, lead to outcomes like that. And I think if you're, you know, wondering about appropriate levels for economic growth that benefit a large uh, swath of the, the population, you have to be thinking about how you can uh, address some challenges that aren't in my economic models to help more people uh, mm. benefit from that. So, I mean, is that two Americas, three Americas, the mm. data? I mean, you can kind of try to do the uniform macroeconomist viewpoint that it's GDP and right. that's all I care about, but there's way more, yeah. um, you know, going on. You know, and this comes up in, in the economics profession now in the um, uh, lack of diversity and women in the profession and do we find ourselves looking at certain questions more and deciding that it's perfectly fine because of that I, I, I really don't know but I, I know that when I have more people in the room giving me new perspectives on how things mm -hmm. should be playing out I usually end up in a better place thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts SoundCloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.